just take a moment or two to gently, mindfully bring your attention back to the center of the room, the Zoom room. And if you're comfortable, be nice to see some of your faces. And that's okay too if you like some down time from people seeing you on the screen. I understand we spend a lot of time on Zoom these days. Maybe that will end sometime in the near future. Just want to say hello to everybody again. And I will just give a short-ish talk. And then we'll have a question and response afterwards. So a long time ago, when I was in college, I became quite interested in the teachings and life of Mohandas Gandhi. And I think that was the first stirrings of, if you will, spirituality, at least, at least that I felt. I think maybe as children, we sort of swim in that ocean all the time. And then as we get a little older into our teens, some of that wonder, mystery, sometimes it wears off or we forget it. When I started learning more about Mohandas Gandhi and his um, fight, his nonviolent fight, his nonviolent civil disobedience to <clears throat> free India from the rule of the British, I was very inspired, and of course later on I found out that he had also influenced um, Martin Luther King and other civil rights activists and the practice of civil disobedience. And there's this one quote that I still remember of his, which is, peace between countries must rest on the solid foundation of love between individuals. And I think I like to take that a little bit further, maybe put a little bit of a Buddhist perspective. I don't know if it's a Buddhist perspective necessarily, um, but just a different perspective. Uh, that this love, you know, how, how can we expect countries to be at peace? And of course, there's still lots of violence in the world, as we know when there is no solid foundation of love between individuals, right? So the love between individuals is only possible if we have peace within ourselves. So this peace within ourselves, this love within ourselves radiates out. And when we're able to experience that for ourselves, it's only natural that other people will feel that toward us and they feel um, a connection. We feel connected to people. So this peace um, arises from the experience of a no solid me and a no solid you. This is the Buddhist teaching of the not self characteristic, one of the three marks of existence. The other two are suffering and impermanence. 
I'm not sure how many of you have ever been to one of our morning services, but we have a chant in there where we say we're um, trying to free all beings so they may dwell in peace, right? That's one of our vows is freeing all beings so they may dwell in peace. And these beings that we're trying to save, that we're trying to free, these are actually beings here in this body-mind. This, these conditioned identities, right? Uh, or to use a more Western psychological name, the subpersonalities, right? The, the way in which our personalities change depending on the circumstances, depending on who we're with, right? The time of day, lots of, lots of different types of, lots of different identities arise, right? We're not a monolithic person, right? We're not the same given, it, given different circumstances. So some people, some people may irritate us and trigger us in certain ways. Other people we find to be very joyful with. So these karmic beings, these are the karmic beings that we're trying to save. It's actually here, taking this backward step, freeing these beings so they may know peace, helping our stuck places that cause us harm, these harmful habit patterns to be transformed. And when we practice meditation, this helps us to investigate what's going on in our body mind, right? And we get to understand more um, how we're affected psychologically, emotionally, and physically when we um, are identified with these karmic beings. So I feel like what prevents us from knowing peace is that we believe that all these conditioned identities and by conditioned identities i would say we could use them again like the subpersonalities conditioned tendencies uh, harmful habit patterns when we are so identified with them that there's no space there's just this constricted feeling this constricted body this constricted mind where we are so identified that we lose our we lose um I guess we lose touch with reality, with what's going on in the present moment. I think this is uh, what zazen helps us to do when we practice zazen or meditation. In the in the moment when we're sitting there on the cushion, just like the sky, we're we're able to stay more close to what's arising in our body and mind without moving away from it. From it, like without oh, I'm going to watch. Netflix, or I'm going to have a cigarette, or I'm going to have alcohol, or I'm going to go talk to my friend for six hours. So Zazen helps us to cultivate the, abit the ability physically and emotionally to stay present with, with, um, discom with discomfort, right? With things that might be causing us discomfort. And another way you can, I don't know if this word works for you, this phrase, but emotionalize conceptualization, so concepts that have emotions entwined with them is another way you could think of karmic beings. Right? And the more that we think these karmic beings, these emotionalized conceptualizations are us, the more that we suffer. And so Buddha on his, the morning of his enlightenment, he described his waking up experience his experience of nirvana, 
like this. I have found a nectar-like dharma, profound, peaceful, free from reference points, luminous, and unconditioned. This was not a description that I had heard before, but I, I read it in a really wonderful book, which I, I highly recommend called The Heart Attack Sutra by Carl Brunholtz. The Heart Attack Sutra is about the Heart Sutra, which we chant every day here at um, City Center. And it was said that when the Buddha offered the teaching of the Heart Sutra, that all these people had heart attacks in the audience. So that's why Carl Brunholtz called it the um, Heart Attack Sutra. So the phrase, um, so I, this, this is Buddha's description of Nirvana. Um, I sort of negated it to sort of uh, get a little closer to what my experience uh, of life was before I started practicing Zen. So, um, so this could be a, a description of samsara, if you will, of suffering, a bitter dharma, superficial, noisy, agitated, obstructed by reference points, cloudy and dependent on conditions. And for me, this obstructed by reference points, or when the Buddha says free from reference points, I think that this to me feels like a very key point, right? If he's saying his experience of nirvana is free from reference points, then perhaps studying these reference points could be helpful, investigating these reference points. And um, in the Heart Sutra, if you're not familiar with it, um, it describes nirvana like this. This is one of the lines. With nothing to attain, a bodhisattva. Now, bodhisattva is just a person who um, is striving, or a person who is striving to be awake, uh, an awakened being, somebody who is trying to help others wake up to their true nature. So, with nothing to attain, a bodhisattva relies on the perfection of wisdom, or prajna paramita, and thus the mind is without hindrance, right? And without hindrance, far beyond all of our inverted views, all of our ideas about life, we realize nirvana. Okay. So we realize nirvana when we rely on, um, when we don't rely on our conditioned tendencies of the mind and body. Right. So when the mind is not hindering us, then we experience, uh, we can experience some peace. Right. I think maybe. I hope that some of you have experienced that while you're meditating, either before, during meditation, sometimes after, or sometimes, um, the, you know, the quieting of the mind, which sometimes happens for people when they're really exercising, which is one of the, one of the um, could be a helpful thing when people are exercising that they're they don't hear their mind being crazy and noise, right? So, um, so this line intrigues me, right? That there's nothing to attain. And when I first read this sutra, it was back in um, 2001 in Austin, Texas. And um, I wondered, of course, if there's nothing to attain, then you know, why are we here, right? I thought I thought I was practicing Buddhism <laughs> to try to end suffering and attain nirvana, that peaceful, profound, nectar-like uh, place where um, we're free from reference points. So another way uh, that this line is translated is 
without attainment. Bodhisattvas take refuge in the perfection of wisdom and live without walls of the mind, right? So they live without walls of the mind. Another, another translation of this is um, that when we rely on insight, on perfection of wisdom, we dwell without thought covering. So the walls of the mind, thought coverings, they start to fall away. We start to move beyond, have experiences that um, go beyond our limited perception of ourselves, others, and the world. So if, so for me, these thought coverings are walls of mind, that when we start to see through the walls of mind and thought coverings, we can start to taste some cessation of thinking mind. These thought coverings and walls of mind are actually reference points. Okay? So when we see that these reference points are impermanent, which is the second market of existence, they're not who we are, and that they cause us to suffer. Right. So when we get, to, we start to see, when we start to experience, uh, when we are suffering, it's because usually we're holding on to some thought, some perspective. There's a reference point for us. Right. So that's when our fist is kind of closed and we're sort of dug in our heels and we want things our way and we really push up against life. Um, so those reference points are often what cause us to the, the, um, Identification with these reference points is what causes us to suffer. So I have a story about this. So when I was back in school, when I was in third grade in the 1970s in a Catholic grammar school in New York, one of my favorite teachers was getting ready to go to lunch. Her name was Miss Joan Kopecky, and she was all the kids were falling out, you know, out of the classroom to go to go to lunch recess, and she was, you know, with putting on her beige makeup foundation. I guess is what they call it. Maybe they still do call it. I don't know. But it was. I was very curious. I was about eight or nine years old, and I wasn't sure why she was putting on this makeup because she was just going to lunch. So I asked her, you know, what are you doing? You know, why are you? What are you doing? And she said, Well, I'm putting on makeup. I was like, Well, aren't you just going to lunch? And she said, yes, but I might meet Mr. Wright. And I said, well, Mr. Wright is dead. And she responded or she reacted by slapping me across the face. I, of course, had no idea why she slapped me. And in that moment, all I did obviously was cry and felt very ashamed. Uh, and I ran out of the classroom. I don't really remember the rest of the day, but I do remember talking to my mother and telling her about what happened, that I, I um, told my teacher that Mr. Wright was dead and that I was slapped. And my mother was uh, very supportive. I was eight or nine. <laughs> and she was surprised that I said this, that Mr. Wright was dead. And I said, well, aren't Orville and Wilbur Wright dead? Right? The, the men who invented the flying machines. You know, that was one of our lessons in third grade. And my mother said, well, that's true, Heather, but what you basically said to your teacher, you insulted her because you told her she was never going to meet 
an ideal future husband, right? That was Mr. Right. So her reference point for Mr. Right was this is the future husband and I need to find Mr. Right. As an eight-year-old or nine-year-old, my reference point of Mr. Right was as Orville or Wilbur Wright, the men who, the brothers who invented the airplane. So those reference points, obviously her reference point is valid for her and my reference point is valid for mine. So it was just basically how she, uh, this misperception on her part and misperception on my part. So, you know, had she, so neither one of us was wrong, of course, but had she um, not been so identified with the story that I'm sure she must have heard lots and lots of times uh, that she's never gonna find Mr. Wright. I don't know how old she was, maybe she was in her thirties, that, um, yeah, that she probably wouldn't have smacked me. And she was insulted by me, even though I was speaking innocently, right? So if she could have taken a backward step, maybe she would have laughed. Maybe she would have been more curious, like, oh, well, Heather, what do you mean by Mr. Wright? Rather than smacking me, she might have actually been curious, right? So this reactivity, whenever we're very reactive, that's a clue. Right? We're being triggered in a certain way where we're so reactive that we're not really able to respond to what's happening in the present moment. And that was true for her. She wasn't able to respond to what was happening in the present moment. She reacted. She had very thick filters around the story, this reference point of Mr. Wright, the story that she had bought into, um, that she was never going to find this ideal future vision future husband. So that really obscured her ability to communicate with me because she was held so tightly onto the story. Right. So that's what I that's an example of a reference point, a very tightly held reference point that a re, an emotionalized conceptualization, right? What does this Mr. Right mean? It's just two words. But there's so much emotion for her behind this, that's why she smacked him. Right. So her imagined story that she wasn't going to ever meet Mr. Wright, that she wasn't worthy to find a husband, she had this imagined self that needed to be protected, right? So this was actually an inverted view. This is one of her thought coverings or one of the walls of mind. Because if she didn't really believe that story, if that reference point didn't really exist for her, she never would have smacked me, right? Because she wouldn't have felt so wounded and threatened by my innocent remarks. Was she born with the story about having to find an ideal future husband? Well, this is the 70s, um, which you know weren't that long ago, but in some ways it was very long ago. And I'm sure she inherited this idea that she was going to be an old maid if she didn't get married by a certain age. And all the shame she must have felt about not being married again. I don't know when you're eight, everybody looks like they're really old. <laughs> so I don't know how old she was. Um, and uh, I'm sure that this was a story that she had heard over and over again from her parents and society, very patriarchal place, um, the neighborhood I grew up in, um, very heteronormative, patriarchal. And I remember my own sort of, uh, I have this other example in my own life when I was about 11 or so, 
maybe a little older than that. My brother was, my oldest brother was like 14 or 15 and I was loading the dishwasher and in a haphazard way. And he said, well, what man's going to want to marry you if, you know, if you don't know how to load a dishwasher properly? So that was his story. That was his reference point that no, no guy's going to want to marry me if I don't know how to properly load a dishwasher. So that was his, he had a very conditioned patriarchy there, right? That was inculcated in him, that a girl needs to be a certain way in order for her to find the ideal future husband, Mr. Wright. And I responded that, well, I probably wouldn't be interested in marrying a guy if he cared how I loaded the dishwasher. So that was my, that was my um, response to his, his patriarchal attitude, right? So just like Ms. Kopecki, my brother had this false belief about women and men, right? Or you had a belief about women and men, which was different from my reference point about men and women. So my teacher carried this unexamined story of herself forward and overlaid it onto that present moment when she smacked me. So the true nature of her mind was covered, obscured by this thought covering. Right, this wall of mind that made her feel separate from who she really is right? and um, from her true nature. And for me, this is the ultimate alienation, right? This, this ultimate separation. So this um, raises the question, you know, who are we without stories, right? Who are we without our stories? That's, I think, a very helpful, um, helpful thought to contemplate actually when you're meditating or when you're just walking around what would happen if all the stories of your life just fell away and there were no stories anymore right? I'm not saying that's always sustainable but when our mind is actually focused on the present moment whether it's focused on our breathing in zazen or it's focused on brushing our teeth or getting dressed, or really feeling the tea mug in our hand. When the mind is still, usually we are a lot more content than when the mind is wandering or proliferating. So when we can, you know, it's not until we can unflinchingly turn our gaze inward that we begin to see through all these fantasies of self, see through the story of Mr. Wright or the story of having to load a dishwasher a certain way to be worthy of Mr. Right. So when our body and mind stabilizes enough on the cushion, we can start to investigate what's going on here, right? What's perceiving when we're sitting here? What, what is perception? And the Heart Attack Sutra, Runeholtz says that um, this non-judgmental, non dual, maybe you've heard that word, non-dual awareness, this prajna, paranita, this perfection of wisdom, why it's so threatening to our ego and our belief systems is because it undermines our very notion of reality, right? And the reference points upon which we build our world. My teacher, Ms. Kopecki, somehow built a lot of her world on the story of having to find Mr. Right and the story that she probably never was going to find Mr. Right, right? That's a belief system that she was very identified with. And of course, you know, the most fundamental reference point is that there's 
an unchanging Heather here. There's an unchanging me somewhere, right? So these, but we're actually not monolithic where we, we are these conditioned karmic beings that are always changing if we allow them to change, if we see, if we can see them and feel them change. Right? So the one, um, when you're living at a monastery, like I did for a little while, and everything is out of your control. You can't control your schedule. You can't control what you're eating. You, um, you know, most of us are wearing, we're all wearing robes while we're there. You get to see, you know, all these distractions are eliminated. There's no Netflix, there's no cell phones, there's no TV sets, there's not a whole bunch of people uh, randomly walking around. So when you, when these uh, distractions are removed, it takes away this illusion that we're in control of our lives. And it really shows you all your preferences. Because maybe you don't really know, well, what do I prefer? But when you're in a monastery, you really notice them because you're not, you're not in charge of anything. You're like, oh, I don't want to eat that for breakfast. I don't want to eat that for dinner. And then things can kind of get a little petty <laughs> because there's nothing. <laughs> there aren't any larger distractions. There's just complaining about the food or complaining about the cold or complaining about the schedule. But that's all because we have ideas and we have preferences, right? And I came up with this little phrase like preference is a reference. Right? Well, wh whenever we have a preference, not that I'm saying that we're, you know, you're, we're all always going to have preferences because we're human beings. But it's when those preferences start to cause us to suffer because we're resisting what is, then that's where the work is, right? We can have a preference for, oh, I prefer black tea to oolong, but is that what, is that causing you to suffer? If it's not causing you to suffer, then it's just a preference. And if you're able to drink the tea you don't really like, then that's okay. It's not about, um, yeah, we're not trying to wipe away anything here. It's just this investigation. If we're suffering, we take the backward step and we look at what, why are we suffering? Is there a reference point there that I'm holding on to that's causing me to suffer? So um, Carl Brunholtz talks about the Heart Sutra and says that, um, I really like this phrase where he talks about um, but not only is our perceiving mind dynamic, right? So the mind that's perceiving everything is dynamic. It's always changing, right? So it changes from moment to moment, but so do the objects that the uh, mind is perceiving changes as well. Now we don't necessarily see that because you know this looks pretty solid to me. You all look pretty solid to me. I'm not like able to see through all of you. But we know everything's a wave, especially nowadays, you know, everything's a wave. So when you have a sound of a bell, the sound isn't there until I strike it. And that's a wave, right? It's a wave. It's, it's, we can tell with sounds that they're, tran they're transitory, right? They're always changing, sound waves. Um, so I like to practice actually when I'm meditating with sounds because they do come and go and we can perceive the impermanence of sound much more easily than we can the impermanence of looking at a bell, right? So he says, um, so not only is the mind, the perceiving mind changing, the objects of perception are changing as well. And he says, phenomena 
cannot be defined by themselves, right? So we can't, the spell can't really be defined by itself because he says that rather we can only talk about phenomena, right? Everything, everything's phenomena as complexes of mutual relationships with other phenomena, which in themselves are complexes of relationships with other complexes of relationships. So this is why it's difficult to use language to describe what's going on for us because everything's a concept. And um, so with the spell, the spell, by, as is everything, is a perfect example of interdependence. Who made the bell? What is the bell made of, right? The bell is made of all the elements of the earth and um, Buddhists would say as well as space and consciousness, right? Those are two other elements uh, in the Buddhist schema. So this add in, you know, everything's in, everything, the universe is right here in this bell. The universe is in each one of us, right? So we just call this a bell, uh, a small bell. And if we were to talk about all these mutual complexes, mutual complexes of mutual relationships, we would never be able to speak because I would take me 20 minutes to talk about all the people involved in making this object that we use in meditation or elsewhere. And as you can see, it's very difficult. So we have a little label called bell, right? It's a mutual, it's a way that we understand what this is without having to describe all of the complex relationships um, that exist in the making of this bell. So if we didn't have labels for these objects strung into sentences, it wouldn't be easy to converse, right? Um, and then of course, with my story about Mr. Wright, that concept, because we each had our own definition of it, our own reference point, it actually caused quite a, uh, caused me to suffer. I mean, I didn't mean to insult my teacher. Uh, she did mean to slap me though, and that was just a reaction on her part. So we can see how how often we can how often we misunderstand people because of, of their understanding of a word or a phrase or a sentence is different from our understanding. And many of us often react rather than respond with curiosity, like, oh, so what is it that you mean by Mr. Wright? Oh, remember Ms. Kopecky when you told us that Orville Hilbert Wright, they they did the first flight at Kitty Hawk? That's, aren't they dead? Oh yes, of course, Heather, they are dead. What I'm talking about really is a future husband. That's who I think you're talking about, Mr. Wright. Oh, okay, thanks. Right, so what I love about Buddhism is it helps us to broaden our perspective. It helps us to see ourselves less like statues and be able to start to experience ourselves as fluid, as fluidity, as flux. And that allows us to experience other people that way. Otherwise, if I'm a concrete statue, I'm only reacting to everybody or interacting with everybody as if they were also fixed, fixated, right? I'm sure we've all had those experiences where like, oh my gosh, I got to go talk to so-and-so. Maybe it's a parent for you. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's your boss. Maybe whatever. And you have an idea of how they're going to be. And sometimes they surprise you and they're different. And isn't that lovely? Or maybe it's frustrating depending on your, on who, how you react to that. So um, 
So the Heart Sutra also tells us that just like this bell and everything else, there's, it's empty of its own, yes, it only can be defined and described in relationship to other things is one way to put, is one way to talk about emptiness, right? We say that it's empty of its own being, right? That it's, it's, it's nothing but relationships, this bill. Just like all of us, we're nothing but comp- complex and often complicated relationships. So um, part of what Zazen helps us to do is it helps us to stay with what's arising for us on the cushion, um, helping us to notice when we are getting triggered, what's triggering, triggering us, what's causing us to suffer. Maybe it's a thought, maybe it's a, a body memory that might be causing us to suffer. And to be able to stay with it as much as we can. And while that bubbles up to the surface, if we're able to just let it be there without trying to push it away, then that helps helps some of those strong emotions, some of that suffering to to dissolve, right? Um, So these reference points start to slowly dissolve. We start to experience um, more ease because we're not so fixated in the way we're thinking or who we have to be. We're not striving to maintain a certain um, persona, right? We let some of these reference points start to fall away these walls of mind start to feel less substantial. And then we start to experience less of a separation between my perception of this bell, right? The one who's perceiving and the perceived. And Thich Nhat Hanh has this really, uh, if you, next time you're meditating, you can um, practice his meditation of the elements, you can probably find it online. But when I was at the monastery, I used to practice with while I was eating. You know, there's water water outside in my soup, there's water inside. There's air in here, there's air in here, right? There's space, right? Most of everything is space. Here, space here, space here, fire, earth, consciousness. So when we start to realize that all the elements exist, not only in ourselves, but also in sentient and non-sentient beings, how that's our profound interconnectivity. And when we start to have more physical or embodied experiences of our connection with even something like a bell, That's when we start to treat ourselves and others, even inanimate objects, with care. So I think that when we practice meditation, sometimes that that happens for us where we're able to settle and just be open to what's arising without all of these thought coverings. And I, um, I hope that you can continue to meditate and continue to study the self and maybe practice with um, Thich Nhat Hanh's element practices next time you're, you're meditating. So um, I think that's all I have for tonight. So thanks for listening. And 
um, let me know if you have any questions.